The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. I'm glad you were interested enough in our project to pay us a personal call, Senator. Let's just say I don't like to scrap billions of dollars by just sending a memo. Scrap? Tony, the Senator feels our experiments haven't shown enough success to warrant the time and money invested. But we're so close now. Close to what, son? To sending a man back in time and returning him, of course. Well, then do it. No more promises, boys. I want a fact I can grab hold of. By when? When? You and the General have been on this for ten years. You've been with the project almost seven. I say the time is now. You mean today? That's right. Because tomorrow afternoon I'm flying back to Washington to write you a blank check or cut your umbilical cord. Leroy! We are not ready to risk a life. Doug, let me try it. Absolutely not. We just give up, is that it? We put our lives into this project. I'm not going to commit murder, and I'm not going to allow you to commit suicide just to satisfy a budget. That's no answer. That's not even science. Excuse me. He seems a little emotional for a scientist. Morning London. It is Thursday, August 14, 2008. I'm Bob Metz and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. You know that. Just right. Fade into color and color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Welcome to the show today, beautiful August day. It feels a little bit more like uh, September, though, doesn't it? But I think the warm weather's still coming on its way back. 519-661-3600 is the number you can call if you want to join in on some of the conversation today. And, of course, you can always email us at justrightchrw at gmail.com. And, of course, there's our website, www.justrightmedia.org, where you can get archives of all of our past shows from the first one, to the very one you're listening to today. Today on the show, of course, you might have heard about this already, it's Blackout Day in Ontario, uh, celebrating five years since uh, the big blackout that affected the northeastern seaboard of North America. Um, Also today on the show, that'll be later in the show, of course, but also today we want to talk about science fiction and fantasy and how do they really relate to reality. Some interesting observations that were made in the National Post, and I think I've got some counterpoints to what they might have said. Also on the show, I want to talk about, believe it or not, your feelings, emotional reason. I bet you never heard those two words in the same sentence. And can we actually be right in our feelings? And that's what I'm going to be talking about today. Now, or starting the show off with, anyway. Last week, if you uh, tuned into the show, and if you missed it, you can always, again, get it online at justrightmedia.org. But I introduced the uh, ideas of psychologist Willem Reich, and focused on his unintended publication, Listen, Little Man, with respect to its commentary on the fascist psychology he saw in Germany during the rise of Hitler in the 1930s. And, of course, happiness, freedom, choice, and capitalism were the context and theme within which his influence was discussed. But today on the show, I'd like to introduce you to the ideas of yet another writer, 
Someone I've mentioned on this show many times before, but really never got into in as much detail as I'd like to today, and that is John McMurray, whose uh, you know whose work I've referred to on this show. I think I would say about a dozen times without really talking much about him himself. Now, among the book titles by McMurray in my own personal collection are uh, the titles "Conditions of Freedom." Freedom in the Modern World, The Self as Agent, Persons in Relation, and the one I'll be focusing on today, Reason and Emotion, which is a book that I think truly stands alone on the way it deals with this subject. I noticed, too, as I was going through the book, that another book I'd still like to get by McMurray that I do not have is is his book called uh, Interpreting the Universe. Now, John McMurray was a Scottish philosopher who lectured in both Britain and in Canada here during the 1930s and the 1940s, including at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, way back in January 1949, which uh, certainly was before my time. There is a John McMurray Society in Toronto, and there are John McMurray Friendship and Fellowship meetings held all around North America from what I have seen and been informed, and they're still very active today. If you did a search for him on the Internet, you'd be surprised at the things you would find about him. But in the preface to McMurray's book, The Self as Agent, which is one of the few that really talks about him, reviewer Stanley Harrison suggests that, quote, one important way of reading the whole of McMurray is to see him as putting into into place one central idea, that what it means for a person to be fully rational, fully objective in feeling, thought, and action is to become authentically religious. This he intends to show as a philosophical truth. The task of philosophy for McMurray is the search for reality. End quote. Now we talked about religion in the past on this show, and I used a lot of quotes from McMurray. So you might be surprised at one of my favorite authors. is someone who's regarded as quite religious when I've already mentioned on the show that I don't particularly believe in deities. But religion and deities and practices and traditions and principles of behavior, I think, are far more universal than just within an era religious thing. But I've talked about that on the show, too. Again, you can get that in our archives online. Now... This book, Reason and Emotion, I remember when I picked it up, it was quite a revelation to me. I didn't even think about them in the same light the way McMurray did. I've seen other people write about this. And uh, I understand that most of the book was given in the way of lectures, and some of it was actually broadcast in the 1930s, very early 30s period, both in, uh, on BBC in Britain, radio, of course, and here in Canada, out of Kingston, Ontario, which is a strange thing. So, uh, you know, what you'll be hearing today is not the first time it's been broadcast, <laughs> strangely enough, on radio. But, of course, that was almost a century ago now. Now, just to give you some of the ideas of what McMurray thinks about reason and why he thinks it should also apply to your emotions and how you feel. And he asks the question, what is emotional reason? And he says, the question, I imagine, seems a strange one, and that itself is highly significant. Our lives belong to a stage in human development in which reason has been disassociated from emotional life and, in fact, contrasted with it. Reason means to us thinking and planning and scheming and calculating. It carries our thoughts to science and to philosophy, to the counting house or the battlefield, but not to music or to laughter or to love. Is reason a matter of intellect and logical thought, asks McMurray? Is, is it really separated from the emotional life that surges beneath it in the depths? Or is there reason in the emotional life itself? Thought has begun to doubt its own monopoly on reason. If we're to discover the nature of emotional reason, 
we must be sure about what we mean by reason in general. That's the first thing I always look for when I read anyone. Do they define their terms? Because even if you don't agree with their terms all along the way, if they're defined in a way that they make clear to you, you can still use them and then reflect on that and use your own words if you don't like the words that they're using. And that's how you have to read a lot of stuff, in fact, because you won't find consistent ideas in, in a lot of books. But, writes McMurray, whatever is a characteristic and essential expression of human nature must be an expression of reason. A conception of reason which is applicable to science but not to religion or art must be a false conception, or at least an inadequate one, says McMurray. Reason is the capacity to behave consciously in terms of the nature of what is not ourselves. That's an interesting thing. I didn't realize how important that was. He says, we can express this briefly by saying that reason is the capacity to behave in terms of the nature of the object, that is, to behave objectively. Reason is thus our capacity for objectivity. When we wish to determine why anything behaves as it does, we normally assume it behaves in terms of its own nature. But when we're considering how human beings behave, we're met by a special difficulty which is usually discussed as the difficulty about the freedom of the will. We continue to assume that human beings necessarily behave in terms of their own nature like anything else. And here's an interesting thought. But it's precisely this assumption that is at fault. Reason is the capacity to behave not in terms of our own nature, but in terms of our knowledge of the nature of the world outside. Let me give you a simple example, says McMurray, and this is a simple one. A little boy starts to run across a busy street. His mother sees him from the pavement and sees that he's in imminent danger of running in front of a car. Her natural impulse is to call out to him in terror. But if she did so, she would be acting subjectively in terms of her own natural constitution, responding to a stimulus from the environment. But she does not. She recognizes that to shout to the boy would only increase his danger by distracting his attention, so she suppresses her impulse. Her behavior is rational, because it is determined not by her subjective impulse, but by her recognition of the nature of the situation outside her. She acts in terms of the nature of the object. End quote. Now, I think this is a fascinating illustration, even in so simple an example of a child running out into a busy street, of how important reason and rational philosophy are to the very essence of survival, which is something Ayn Rand, of course, argued about constantly. Now, the main difficulty, says McMurray, that faces us in the development of a scientific knowledge of the world lies not in the outside world, but in terms of our own inner emotional life. It is the desire to retain beliefs to which we are emotionally attached for some reason or other. It is the tendency to make the wish the father to the thought. Science itself, therefore, is emotionally conditioned, which might explain why we played the clip we did at the beginning of the show. By the way, if you're going to build a, build a time machine or a time tunnel, if you caught that opening clip, I suppose you first have to want to time travel, wouldn't you? Which is an emotional quality. You're not going to start building any machine until it meets a need that, that serves your purpose. So McMurray continues, if we are to be scientific in our thoughts, then we must be ready to subordinate our wishes and desires to the nature of the world. Reason demands that our beliefs should conform to the nature of the world, not to the nature of our hopes and ideals. In this field, therefore, the discovery of truth must be, from the subjective side, a process of disillusionment. Our natural tendency is to feel and to believe in the way that satisfies 
our impulses. I guess another way of saying that is uh, reality is a real bummer when it con conflicts with your beliefs. Eh? It is precisely the same problem that faces us in the field of morality, says McMurray. Morality, after all, is merely a demand for rational behavior. Now, there's, you know, there's where McMurray says something in a sentence that's worth a book. You know, and books have been written on that, to say that morality is merely the demand for rational behavior. Yeah, merely. <laughs> but uh, he makes his point. Morality demands that we should act in the light of eternity. That is, in terms of things as they really are, and of people as they really are, and not in terms of our subjective inclinations and private sympathies. What can it mean, then, to distinguish between rational and irrational feelings now? We're in the habit of saying that all our feelings are just felt. They can... You know, they can't be true or false. You've heard people say that, eh? They're just what they are. You know, your feelings, they're just what they are. Hey, you just feel what you feel. You can't do much about that. Our thoughts, on the other hand, can be true or false. And about that, we have no difficulty. Yet if we think clearly, argues McMurray, we shall realize that there is no special difference between feelings and thoughts in this respect. We could easily say that our thoughts are just what we think. We just think them, and they are what they are. How then can they be? true or false? The answer is that their truth or falsity does not lie in them, but in a relation between them and the things to which they refer. True thoughts are thoughts which refer properly to reality, and which are thought in terms of the nature of the object to which they refer. Why should our feelings be any different in any case? asks McMurray. You know, until I read that, I never even thought about it, never even thought in that way, and I'd been <laughs> into politics and freedom and all this stuff for years, and no one ever quite put it this way. Since our feelings then, says McMurray, refer to what is outside them, to some object about which they are felt, why should they not refer rightly or wrongly to their object just like thoughts? Why should they not be proper feelings when they're in terms of the nature of the object, and improper feelings when they're not in the terms of the nature of the object? because that's the distinction we are always making. In thinking thoughts, we think the things to which the thoughts refer. In feeling emotions, we feel the things to which the emotions refer. And therefore, we can think rightly or wrongly." End quote. Now, when I first read these words, I found them to be profoundly enlightening, and I'm a little embarrassed to say that th this whole idea of emotions being judged in a moral light, and the sense of feeling rightly or wrongly, had really never consciously occurred to me. And uh, even, you know, I'd been applying all these principles, as I said, to all these non-emotional areas. Uh, what's interesting to note in all of this is that even if your feelings are based upon a false assumption or belief, okay, something totally unreal and non-existent, this is important, they will feel no different to you from feelings that are based on a true belief or of a fact or of reality. The feeling or emotion will feel the same to the feeler, okay, if that's the right word, to the person who's being emotional, in either case. Uh, you, know, you think about the implications of this for a minute or two because it's not as simple as you might expect. And, uh, and while you're thinking about that, I'm going to take a quick break here. Here's an example of just how that might affect you in your daily life from the Lois and Clark Superman series of the mid-1990s. And we'll be back after this break with more. Clark, you can run, but you can't hide. What's going on? What do you mean, what's going on? Don't give me that innocent act. Me? So that's the way you're going to play this, huh? Oh. 
Oh, I get it. She's here, isn't she? No. That's why you can't talk. She's here. Hear that? <laughs> no. <laughs> this is either not what I thought I uh, thought or... Uh, oh, mm. no, no, no. <laughs> no, see, uh, yeah, see, we thought they might be staging these things to scoop us. So, well, we uh, staged Clark's defection. You could have told me that. No, no, see, uh, uh, well, that was my idea. Uh, well, uh, you seem to be personally involved here, and, well, I didn't want to risk it. So you mean that I have been having all these feelings for nothing? What feelings? Forget it. I'm not feeling them anymore. I know this guy, he's a, an entomologist, and he's married to an etymologist. And he can tell you about every species of bug and all their attributes and characteristics. And she can take the names of those bugs, and she can tell you their origin and their Greek and Latin derivative. And they have no friends. <laughs> thought that was a funny joke because it speaks so much to what we're talking about today, talking about John McMurray and his book, Reason and Emotion. If you're just joining us, or you're listening to CHRW Radio, 94.9 FM, 519-661-3600, the number to call if you want to add a comment to the show. I've been talking about John McMurray, the Scottish philosopher, to whom friendship was almost the pinnacle of his whole hierarchy of values and, and, what it, and reason, of course, was the road to that as he saw it and how it applied. And uh, we're talking about reason and emotion and how they relate to each other. Now, McMurray actually went out of his way to, to explain how you feel right emotionally, not physically here now, you know, and he, and he called it developing emotional reason, which is uh, different from developing reasons for being emotional, okay? <laughs> That's rationalization, different thing. Uh, McMurray says, quote, the chief difficulty in the development of emotional reason lies in the surprising fact that we know relatively little about our emotional life. We continually recognize in other people motives and feelings of which they themselves are quite ignorant. The reasons we give ourselves for ac our activities, and even more certainly the reasons we give to other people for, their rarely, for, for they rarely express our real motive, and never the whole of our motive. Uh, hidden motives are necessarily subjective, says McMurray. They are necessarily the expression not of reason, but of subjective impulses. It is extremely difficult to become aware of this great hinterland of our minds and to bring our emotional life, and with it, the motives of our behavior, fully into consciousness. And that's true, because, you know, in day-to-day -day life, you're making decisions in, in, in flash seconds. You know, you're deciding this and that. And that's your emotional makeup. But he says, it means the beginning of the task of developing emotional reason in man. The real problem of the development of emotional reason is to shift the center of feeling from the self to the world outside. We can only begin to grow up into rationality when we begin to see our own emotions or our own emotional life as not the center of things. The field in which emotional reason expresses itself most directly is the field of art, says McMurray. The artist's success 
depends upon the rationality of his emotions. Now remember this, because we're going to talk about this again when we talk about science fiction and fantasy later on, too. This actually fits into there. It's not enough that the artist should express his emotional reaction to the world. If his feelings are merely subjective reactions, his work will be bad, says McMurray. Experience of works of art uh, shows a distinction between those which affect us subjectively and those which reveal the world to us and its real significance. Objective emotion is not a mere reaction to stimulus. It is an immediate appreciation of the value and the significance of real things. Emotional reason is our capacity to apprehend objective values. The capacity to love objectively is the capacity which makes us persons. It is the ultimate source of our capacity to behave in terms of the object, and it is the core of rationality, says McMurray. And then he gets in to almost the thing that was just illustrated by the Lois and Clark clip, uh, clip there, too. Real or unreal? And he says, again, emotions can be real or unreal. To say that a feeling is unreal does not mean that we don't feel it, like I explained earlier, any more to say than an idea is false. That when an idea is false, that, that that means that we don't think it. Now, unreal emotion may be very strongly felt, and it may influence our conduct profoundly. It is the very feelings that we do feel and which do provide the motives of our activities that are often unreal. And this so applies to so much of social interaction and politics in particular. Now, if that is so, asks McMurray, the question arises, how can we see to it that our emotions are not illusory? How can we train ourselves to have feelings which do correspond to the nature of the situation in which we act? How can we develop an emotional life that's reasonable in itself so that it moves us to forms of behavior which are appropriate to reality? We are very apt to take the view that one feels that one, what one feels, and that's all there is about it. We cannot fall back upon thinking in this dilemma, says McMurray. Thinking can never do more than improve our knowledge of the facts of the situation, and even, even this is difficult where our emotions are strongly aroused because the emotion itself tends to make thinking difficult or to pervert it if the emotion is unreasonable. Under these circumstances, we tend to insist that the situation is what we feel it is, often against the clearest intellectual evidence that we are wrong. But apart from the difficulty of using thought in the field where it might help us, there is one crucial thing that thinking cannot do at all. It cannot decide whether the thing it reveals is good or bad, beautiful or ugly, or to be shunned or to be sought. For the determination of values, we are dependent upon our emotions. There can be no hope of educating our emotions unless we are prepared to stop relying on other people's for our judgment of value. We must learn to feel for ourselves, even if we make mistakes. This is exactly what Willem Reich was saying uh, that we got through and, and went into on the show last week as well. And argues, McMurray, the intellect itself cannot be a source of action. And I'll tell you, in politics, I can surely attest to that. Uh, rational arguments, reason, uh, those are not the motivating forces. But if they were integrated into our emotions, they could be. But unfortunately, too many people feel unreal things, about unreal, literally unreal things. The education of the emotions, uh, says McMurray, consists in the cultivation of a direct sensitiveness to the reality of the world around us. The reason why our emotional life is so undeveloped is that we habitually suppress a great deal of our sensitiveness and train our children from their earliest years to suppress much of their own. 
It might seem strange that we should cripple ourselves so heavily in this way, but there's a simple reason for it. We are afraid of what would be revealed to us if we did not cripple our emotional sensitivity. Now here again, that's exactly what Willem Reich said in what we discussed last week, although he discussed it in terms of what he called a person's emotional armor. An interesting term, you know, to protect him from the things he doesn't want to know about. Uh, in practice, this is interesting, uh, says McMurray, sensitive, sensitiveness hurts. It is not possible to develop the capacity to see beauty without also developing the capacity to see ugliness, for they are of the same capacity. The capacity for joy is the, is the capacity for pain. We soon find that any increase in our sensitiveness to what is lovely in the world also increases our capacity for being hurt. That is the dilemma in which life has placed us. We must choose between a life that is thin and narrow, uncreative and mechanical, with the assurance that even if it's not very exciting, it will not be intolerably painful, and a life in which the increase in its fullness and creativeness brings a vast increase in delight, but also in pain and hurt. People have always sought for some way of life in which pleasure could be increased and pain avoided. And the whole philosophy of utilitarianism is an elaborate effort to persuade us that it is possible. The maximum of pleasure with the minimum of pain for the greatest possible number of people is the ideal of the utilitarian. This, by the way, is a belief that you have to deal with in politics everywhere, you know. Uh, greatest good for the greatest number. It's almost Marxist in a way, isn't it? But warns McMurray, the nemesis that waits upon it is this, that we must choose between the increase of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. If we choose to minimize pain, we must damp down human sensitiveness and so limit the sources of possible delight. If we decide to increase our joy in life, we can only do it by accepting a heightened sensitiveness to pain. On the whole, concludes McMurray, we seem to have chosen to seek the absence of pain, and as a result, we've produced stagnation and crudity, end quote. Uh, wow, you know, talk about an entirely unique way of expressing that cult of zero worship we've been talking about on this show a lot, which is kind of the opposite of the pursuit of happiness. And uh, so much of this is almost just another way of saying what Willem Reich said last, uh, that we had in the show last week, talked about. And, of course, they both wrote at a time similar to each other, a time in history, I mean. And it seems to me a tragedy that people like uh, Reich and McMurray and, of course, Ayn Rand, Isabel Patterson and others, whom I will introduce on future shows, are so avoided in our education system. You just don't hear about them there. In fact, I told you a story about how some of them are just tossed out explicitly. Don't read this person. So that's it for uh, some of the ideas of John McMurray. If you want to check it out, uh, you can still find some of those books. A few might be out of print. I think most are still available and still being printed. In fact, as I mentioned before, uh, former Prime Minister Tony Blair wrote one of the uh, introductions to uh, one of the later editions of one of John McMurray's books. Now, on the other side of these upcoming important ads and very important announcements, we'll be, take, we'll be talking about reality again, but from a seemingly very unreal perspective, science fiction and fantasy. So stay with us. We'll be back right after this. Althea, do you believe in the future? I mean that there really is a future for you, your children, mankind? Yes, of course I do. And obviously you believe in the past, everybody does. But what if I were to tell you that the past and the future are the same? 
You think I'm raving. No, no, I don't. I don't blame you. Suppose I told you that time itself doesn't exist. It's only motion we measure, the motion of the Earth spinning, the orbit of the Earth around the sun. Tony, I'm sorry. Oh, no, no. I'm the one who's sorry I frightened you. So the whole thing exploded, and there we were, 70,000 light years from home and no way to get back. Felt pretty lonely. That's a very noble story. Noble? Hmm? Stories can be whimsical or frightening or, or melancholy or many other things. But noble stories are the ones that can most affect our lives. May I have your permission to tell others this story? <laughs> sure. It's no secret. But stories are an essential part of every person's being. I would never share one without permission. Go right ahead. <laughs> I've got a few others, too. You do? Come with me. I know a private place where you can tell me all your stories. Back to the show. Uh, yeah, this is a nice private place, and we've got some stories to tell you, too. Listen to CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will still be with you till from now till noon. Just got a call uh, during commercial there, uh, someone looking for some John McMurray books. If you just want to know the spelling of that, you can check it out on uh, on the Internet, and it's M-A-C-M-U-R-R-A-Y is the spelling. So, uh, And the first name's John, so... Used to always get mixed up with Fred McMurray, the actor. <laughs> Bored with reality? Look to science fiction and fantasy. These genres tackle philosophical questions. So read the headline in the book review section of the National Post back on August 2nd, 2008, in an article by Clive Thompson. Uh, you know, I made exactly that observation on this very show oh, well over a year ago in respect to uh, television, science fiction, and fantasy which I apologize, I haven't talked too much about TV seasons lately because since the writer's strike, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, here's what writer Clive Thompson had to say with, um, with respect to books. And this is a book review and talking about science fiction and fantasy. And he says, if you want to read books that tackle profound philosophical questions, then the best and perhaps only place to turn these days is sci-fi and fantasy. They are the last great literature of ideas. From where I sit, says Thompson, traditional literary fiction has dropped the ball. I studied literature in college, and throughout my 20s, I voraciously read contemporary fiction. Then eight or nine years ago, I found myself getting, well, bored. After I'd read my 189th novel about someone living in a city, working in a basically realistic job, and having a realistic relationship in a realistically fraught family, I started to feel as if I'd been reading the same book over and over and over again. So what do you do then, he asks. Well, you change the physics. Alter the reality and see what new results you get, which is precisely what science fiction does. Its authors rewrite one or two basic rules about society and then examine how humanity responds so we can learn more about ourselves. 
thought experiments form the foundations of Western philosophy, from Socrates to Thomas Hobbes to Simon de Beauvoir. De Beauvoir. <laughs> Why then does sci-fi, the inheritor of this intellectual tradition, get short shrift among serious adult readers? End quote. And that's the question asked by Clive Thompson. And at this point, I don't think he gives a very satisfactory answer to his own question. He suggests things like, uh, which was weird, prejudices against the attitudes of various science fiction writers like Robert Heinlein, and because apparently the genre tolerates execrable prose stylists, so I, I don't think that gets to the fundamentals of it. I think it's a non-essential argument. It could apply to basically any genre of writing, couldn't it? Uh, perhaps the reason serious readers give a, quote, short shrift to science fiction and fantasy uh, could be because serious adult readers aren't looking uh, for an escape from reality. At least that's how I hear them talk to me sometimes, the ones that I know who don't read it. They want to find, they want, you know, they want to find reality and understand it. And in a way, I think by definition, that's what Mr. Thompson here means when he classifies them as serious. You know, you, you know, science fiction is just fun for the kids kind of thing. But I think good science fiction and fantasy are less about altering or escaping reality than they are about symbolizing that reality in an artistic fashion. That's the license that we give to the artist. Okay, the writer, the writer of the story, the, the director behind the camera, the painter, whatever, you know. Which brings us right back to some of the points raised by John McMurray, you know, that good art corresponds to reality. Bad art doesn't correspond to reality. And uh, I think even so-called abstract art would be subject to this principle. And this is important, too, you know, I, even art that attempts to reject some aspect of reality still has to relate to that reality in order to reject it, doesn't it? So if the artist's uh, perception of reality is flawed, and his or her re rejection of the, that reality would also be flawed. And so you might find someone you know, who's very serious, something very serious to the artist, and people are laughing at it because they just don't get the person's point. You know, they're not, they're not, he, he's looking at it one way, they see the reality objectively, maybe he's looking at it subjectively, and it just doesn't click with the audience. Now, I think science fiction is as much an extension of art as it is a future projection of science or technology. Uh, fantasy is, I would say, less science and technology and more art and imagination, and uh, is a little less disciplined to factors of reality, though it may still symbolize it. Um, now, we, the viewer or the reader, you know, while we may permit through our suspension of disbelief some rule of reality to be broken in that kind of fiction, if you had a complete breakdown of reality, that would be totally unacceptable, wouldn't it? You know, at least if you wanted to have a good story or good art. After all, if if anything can happen, how can you care about the story? Or how can you care about the character or the meaning of the art? Like, who cares? You know, it's those shows you've always seen them, you know, no matter how bad things look to the hero, he's got his back up against the wall, the flamethrowers are coming at him, there's a magic incantation going to take him down, but if all it takes is some last-minute magic incantation, incantation to save the day. I just can't get too excited about the plight of my hero. i got to know what the, what the parameters are. You can, sure, I'll accept beaming and, and transporter devices and spaceships, but don't tell me one minute that uh, the spaceship can suddenly do things that it never did in the first 50 episodes of the show, and all of a sudden it can do things that you didn't know it could do. That, that's cheating, and that's, that's 
going out of to me what I find uh, as uh, as good entertainment. Now I have to confess uh, that since the television writers' strike, I've almost not watched anything on broadcast TV for the last little while. I've I've yeah I've kept up with some of my favorite series and I've been still burning them on the DVDs, but I haven't got around to watching a lot of them yet. So. Uh, I know earlier on in, in uh, when we started this show, I, w- I was doing a lot of stuff regularly on uh, the TV networks and some of the shows coming on, but um, I just haven't caught up yet. I think this fall I'm going to have to uh, put the gears in on that because there's certainly some things going by us. I still haven't watched uh, the last two seasons of Battlestar Galactica or even of Lost, and I, and I like both of those series. Uh, the one new show, I talked about this a little earlier, that I actually liked, you know, one of those rare fantasy genres that actually appealed to me, uh, was Moonlight, and I heard it was all canceled now. Boo, boo hiss, after a first great season, and uh, unfortunately broadcast on Friday nights, the kiss of death in the television world, it seems. Some of the other shows that I've been watching in this genre, um, and sort of keeping up with, uh, uh, only a few episodes I've had out so far of the ter- Terminator, you know, the Sarah, Sarah Connor Chronicles, um, Boy, if you haven't seen that, it's not bad. It uh, it measures up to the movie. It's hard to beat Arnold and uh, what what was done in the Terminator there. But I think this show has some potential. We'll see where it's going. It's going to be renewed. It's coming back. As is Heroes, a great show that we talked about. Uh, I think just a couple weeks ago, too, I talked about uh, the show Eureka, which is being renewed. Uh, I think it's a third season now. I just watched... Now, here's something I just did watch over the past two... Uh, just a couple weeks ago. I watched the first two seasons of Eureka, starring Colin Ferguson, a fun show, comedy, drama, sci-fi, and uh, a little off the wall, definitely, a whole cast of weird, weird characters, and it just seems to work. It's just one of those shows that you enjoy watching. For the, It'll give you a smile. Uh, I noticed the British are starting to make some inroads in the sci-fi uh, drama in North America com- shows coming in. Primeval was one that we've already seen here in Canada. I hear they're just releasing it now in the States uh, this coming fall. And... Um, but basically, the, I don't have too much to say about uh, them all. I remember earlier in the series, I did my whole uh, theory of what I thought the series Lost was about, but I'm still two seasons behind. Maybe I don't want to find out if I was wrong or not. Eh? I'm, I'm avoiding that reality because I'm so, well, I'm emotionally attached to my theory, and I don't want to let it go. I think that's what it is. <laughs> Anyways, that's it for uh, a little bit of science fiction and fantasy thought for now. We'll certainly talk about that more when the TV uh, season does kick in. You know, they told us there wasn't going to be any more TV seasons, which is a little strange, but I think uh, they haven't quite got, gone into that gear yet. When we come back on the other side of this break, we will be talking about uh, Blackout Day today and uh, ban, 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 more green stuff. Right out. You see, we don't appreciate how good we have it in this country until you've been to other countries. And believe me, folks, I've been all over the world. Indiana, Michigan... Tijuana, Vancouver. There's <laughs> no better place than North America, man. We're always bailing somebody out. People hit us up all the time. Feed the kids in Colombia. Hey, feed your own kids in Colombia. How about that novel idea? Catching some of that cocaine money, man. Here's the country's biggest export is coffee and cocaine. The place still looks like crap. Like, come on, man, you're up all night. Pick up a broom for crying out loud.
I didn't know what that was, your hazardous waste, until Gene Cretton explained by saying it was federal funds spent outside his own writing of Shawinny Inigan. <laughs> and when Gene Cretton passed this movement on the floor of the Common House, Uh, about your coyote discords. That upset both hernia heaves and, and the, 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 the little climb. They don't believe in your global warnings. Klein says it's just a bunch of old dinosaur farts. Not to mention your brontosaurs and the sub probably your tyrannosaurus. But I say, what about all them city people sitting in their SVUs, uh, guzzling their gas in the rush hour, bumper to bumper, while they all have nocturnal emissions? <laughs> Not to mention them arsehole spray cans going right up your ozone. But nothing is going to be done about the environmental mentals in Canada because the minister, without the energy to mind our resources, Herb Dollywally, he drives two of them SVUs. So he's just going to sit there in his office in, in Ottawa and, and Dollywally doodles all the day. got a kick out of Charlie Farkerson on global warming. That's funny. But as you know, the green bandwagon goes on and on and on. Today is blackout day in Ontario. Apparently we are now celebrating the blackout of five years ago, something that should never have happened in the first place, especially in Ontario, since we should never have been in the position of not having enough power to meet our peak demands and having to import from Ohio and things like that. At least that's what the politicians promised us way back when they pushed Ontario Hydro and the nuclear energy on us. Live better electrically was the government slogan for years while they were pushing Ontario plants onto the taxpayer. Now, based on a percentage basis, several Ontario cities, I think around 35 towns and cities, including London and uh, other towns, are competing to use the least power between the peak hours of noon to 8 p.m., and that's today. When, of course, that's the period of time that industry uses by far the vast majority of that power. And with our government-sponsored and subsidized power shortage in this province, it's kind of difficult to attract industry and business right now. So make the little guy pay. And on top of that, make him dance around the fire and celebrate that he's paying. Tell homeowners and domestic consumers to turn off their already energy-efficient home appliances and lights, which they just got us all putting in there so that industry can have its unfair share. Is that the way they're thinking? So when this show is over today, from noon to 8 p.m., you know, our political masters would like us to comply with their wish to have us turn off anything that uses electricity so that we can practice for the day when their wish will become a command. So, uh, you know, without much further ado, I'd like to wish you all a happy blackout day. Turn, turn, turn your mind and your power off and be that vegetable that the government wants to grow in its little garden of fascism. I tell you, like science fiction and fantasy, I think this too is all symbolism, isn't it? But from an environmental point, it has nothing to do with reality or with environmental issues. It's all about power, both kinds. 
the kind you click on at the switch, and the kind you click on at the ballot box. Now, speaking of power over others, uh, you know, from, from banning idling at rail crossings, bans on cosmetic pesticides, banning plastic water bottle sales, you know, London's own little eco-green shirts here certainly seem to be growing in number. Councillor Steve Orser, whose drive to free up the taxi business in this city certainly has my general support. Now, I know Steve. He's a nice guy. I like him. We worked together on the taxi deal before, honest. But uh, he's definitely not getting my support over his call to uh, punish people who won't turn their cars off when they're stopped at a railway crossing. I think that's silly and petty, to be, to be honest with you. But it was interesting to hear what his thinking on this was, what, what he was, like, why would you do this? What's the point? We've already got anti-idling bylaws that are not enforceable, will never be enforced, etc., and aren't even needed. But uh, I heard him in a radio interview last week on uh, CJBK with Steve Garrison. And uh, this is what um, basically he, he told Steve on the air. He said, it's a simple request. This was the night before the Environmental and Transportation Committee meeting. He said, I want the ETC to send on to council a recommendation that we have a city-sponsored education campaign titled Turn Off at the Train. And the second part of that is to have the appropriate bylaws brought in so that it's mandatory when you're waiting for a train and the crossings are down that you turn off your engine. I've had positive input from everyone who's heard about it, and there's positive input from councillors about the idea. Uh, he says here, it's one of these no-brainer ideas. The only loser, if you don't turn off at the train, is the guy who gets the ticket, says Orser. And he says, of course, there could be an exclusion for extreme weather. But when he was asked that, uh, okay, there will be those who say, listen, what if you're sitting in a car, it's 32 degrees centigrade outside, the humidity is like up at 44, you're asking us to turn off our engines and sweat, you know? And uh, I actually thought he'd say, no, we'll make an exception for that. But you know what he says? He says, get <laughs> this, quote, Absolutely, he says. You've got to turn off that engine and sweat. You have to look at it from the point of view of gas and environmental savings, he says. So I thought about that, and I'm thinking, well, why do we have to look at it this way? Is it not, isn't it stupid? I mean, if it forces people to choose a lesser value in place of a higher one, as far as I'm con concerned. I value my comfort and my ability to breathe infinitely more than what I might save in gas for a couple of seconds at a railway crossing, while environmentally, of course, Orser's proposal, I think, is far more destructive to the environment. I've talked about that whole deal about idling and restarting your car. But he says, quote, as far as extreme weather, most people don't venture out in those times anyways, so that's not going to be a major concern, and others won't worry about it because when your car is heated up, it can stay heated up for 10, 15, 20 minutes. And when asked why it was so important to him, Steve replied, well, it's one of the many planks for a better London. Hmm, a better London, that's it. Everyone talks a great environmental game at City Hall, except very few seem to really come forward with new ideas. So I'm trying to introduce new ideas, he says. We're doing a lot of catch-up for a number of years of abuse of the environment. The sooner we do it, the better. And as far as more green ideas that are responsible, bring them on. We've got to keep going, says Orser. I think there's going to be wide compliance. The other day, he says, he was in a line of 20 cars at least, and he watched all but one of them turn off their lights, meaning that they turned off their engines. And, of course, London already has an anti-idling bylaw, and uh, should you really have to you know, 
turn your lights out in traffic, even if it were nighttime? What if somebody smashed into your rear end because they didn't see your car standing far back from the railway? Uh, I don't know about that, but uh, who cares about little things like that, right? I don't know who will be doing the policing, says Orser. Currently, it's being done by the health unit, yet they're the fascists of the future and the present to some degree. Watch out for those guys. They're the next Greens. I'm sure we'll, we'll work all the bugs out, he says. The main idea is to get people to know to turn off at the train. And he says, this is absolutely an easy sell. I cannot see a logical argument against keeping your car running while you're waiting at the train, end quote. Well, Steve, <laughs> uh, you know, Steve Orser will never get my vote nor my endorsement for city council. I'm sorry to say I, he's a nice guy, but if you know, anyone who can even think like this, I just don't think this should be part of any council or government in a free society. I want to be in a free society. I don't know about you guys. I, I, obviously, some of you don't think that way. Uh, clearly, and he's not alone in this, but he's the one that went out in the line on this. So, as a city councillor, Orser has rejected the science and technological submissions on idling that have been made to city council which clearly illustrated and explained how idling your car for a few minutes is actually less polluting than turning it off and on. That's the reality of the situation. Hello, hello, anyone out there? But, you know, worse than that, his advocacy of an idling ban shows that he has sided with what I'm calling the green shirts, who never once were able to refute anything said by those in the know but who used green ideas, you know? Remember the green ideas we, that were on the petition? I read them a couple of weeks ago, like, uh, you know, people suck, rise above the capitalist economy of the 20th century, stop selfishness, and a whole host of emotionally crippled arguments that have absolutely nothing to do with anything other than the mental state of its pitiful proponents. I'm sorry, that's just how I feel about this. You know, you start stepping on my freedom, I'm going to bite back. You just can't do that kind of stuff. And, you know, think about this for a minute. This is a philosophical thing about your car. By telling people that they can't idle their cars, the government's basically predetermining the purpose for which you can use your car. In other words, they're telling you that car's always got to be in motion. And once you have a law like that in place, and that's not such a big deal, is it, right? But it won't be long before the purpose of your car itself will relate to the necessity of your drive. Or, for example, how many people are traveling in your, in your car. You see this happening in some places already. So, you know, you might have to be stopped by a police officer and you have to explain, you know, explain your reason for being out. Is it necessary? Oh, it is. Oh, you're just going to the drive-thru just for the fun of it? Well, that's not necessary. I mean, all those things are not necessary. And if you're talking about green ideas, I'm sorry, I haven't seen one, haven't heard one yet. There are, just aren't any green ideas. Green is about anger, it's about force, intolerance, banning convenience and luxury, big government, high taxes, and all of those psychological diseases we've been clearly discussing and illustrating for you on this show over the past two years. The green movement, if I may use a term from Willem Reich, is basically, uh, you know, the emotional plague of the 21st century. That's basically what it is. We got a call. Yeah, we got a call. Uh, Paul? With us there, Paul? How you doing, Bob? Not too bad, Paul. How are you? Yeah, good. I, I just wanted to ask you a question. I don't mean to take you too far off topic nope. or anything, but um, did you say, are you in Ontario, are you celebrating this blackout day? <laughs> something positive? Well, yeah, apparently they are. They want us all to turn off our lights and stuff uh, for, you know, anything that we don't need for eight hours from noon till 8 p.m. tonight. 
Well, I'll tell you, that there's one thing I did see positive from this, but it might not be the, the way that uh, most people are thinking. Okay. Um, I, remem- I remember this very well uh, five years ago, at least the way it was, uh, w- at least it was presented o- over here to us at first. Uh, now, this blackout lasted several weeks, didn't it? Uh, well, no, it, it lasted, yeah, it took, in some parts of Ontario, it took several days to get the power back up, which several was, days. which to and me is why. The press over here, of course, right away was saying after two days, the whole infrastructure is going to close down, be mass riots, and the whole economy, and yeah. the, the whole American continent was about to, was well, about well, to fall I th- apart. I, I and, think, uh, pa- Paul, I think you should tell people where you're calling from. So that Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm calling from Sweden. Yeah. And, uh, I've, I've called before. Well. Yes, so that's. Uh, I thought maybe they might be interested in knowing exactly where you're calling <laughs> from. It's hard to believe that you can listen to the show live right around the world. But um, Oh, thanks to technology. Yeah, there you that go. Another point. <laughs> uh, you know, but, I hope... Uh, anyway, just compare, uh, of course, uh, the sort of mass rioting that never materialized. And I was wondering, I'd just like to get your take. Uh, what do you think it was, the difference, say, perhaps what happened during the blackout and then, say, what happened in, in uh, New Orleans after the, the hurricane where... It, there was a big breakdown of society, and just uh, do you have an idea why the result was so much different? Oh boy, that that, that similar situations. That's all. Albeit the one in New Orleans was more more dramatic. Well, I would think that would be a large part of it. The infrastructure was totally destroyed in New Orleans, and of course they were mm-hmm. underwater, which is uh, an obstacle that's a little bit greater than what you do when you're on dry land. In any case, eh? At least when the power goes out anywhere else, you can you can get out and move. And people were trapped in buildings because the water was 10 feet deep on the road. You just couldn't get out unless you had a boat. And, of course, the government wasn't there in time, and there were all kinds of complaints in that regard. So, uh, But that's there's a whole... Uh, all, I, I think what you might be driving at, too, is there's a whole uh, psychological study of what was going on in New Orleans, too, and the whole welfare mentality and how people, a lot of them, just kind of refused to help themselves and wanted to waited for someone else to help them. And uh, that's something perhaps worth looking at on a future show. All right, that, that's the sense I was getting as well. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you very much for taking the call. Okay, well, thanks for calling, Paul. Yep, take care. Take care, you too. So, uh, you know, there you have it. Uh, people, I wonder what people think about us doing some of the things we do when they look in on Canada from around the world. But, uh, you know, the whole thing about this whole uh, d- banning of, you know, stopping your car at, at the railway t- cra- crossing, we already know that that would pollute more. That's just a fact, okay? I'm not going to demonstrate that for you. I've done it before. Now, remember, now if I go there, what are Steve Orser expecting me to do? He wants me to abandon my reason, abandon my objective judgment, to do the right thing and to behave what I think is a demonstrably irresponsible way with both respect to the environment and to the fundamental freedoms of human beings, you know. And now if I don't do so, he's going to punish me because what? We need new ideas? I didn't hear any new ideas. Name one. You know, no-brainer is not a term you use when someone's trying to promote ideas. <laughs> you know, it sounds a little funny. And I know your brain has to be turned off to be green, uh, but why not try turning on our brains? I think forced agreement is, is not about education of any kind, is it? It's not about an exchange of ideas. And as John Stossel would say, give me a break. Under a government system of enforcement, no ideas are allowed, uh, you know, Anyways, they all say the debate is over, it's all over, wah, 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 all that kind of stuff. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to tell you the debate has just about to begin. It really hasn't done that. But, um, you know, I think if I uh, want to keep my car on to keep a fan or air conditioning or even my radio going, I think I have a right to do that, period, end of story. And that's as much as we're going to say about that today. I hope you'll join us again next week because i got a lot more to say on this. So until next week.
make sure you return to join us on our journey in the right direction. Till then, be right, act right, do right, think right. Take care. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. When I wear t-shirts, I can only wear v-necks because my neck is very fragile. I cannot wear a regular neck shirt, it hurts. <laughs> and I especially hate turtlenecks. Like wearing a turtleneck is like being strangled by a really weak guy. <laughs> All damn day. Like if you wear a turtleneck and a backpack, it's like a weak midget trying to bring you down.